0: Welcome to the DWEN podcast series. My name is Ingrid Devon and I'm the Global Director of DWEN, the Dell Women's Entrepreneur Network. In this finance podcast, I'm delighted to be joined today by Letha Matz, Chief Operating Officer and Co-Founder of Zuper in Germany, and Cameron Rogers, Financial Advisor with Elevest in the US. So I'd like to start by asking Letha and Cameron to give a quick introduction of themselves. Letha, we'll start with you. Hello, everybody.
1: Yeah, my name is Leita, and I am the CEO co-founder, as you mentioned, of Super GmbH here in Germany. Uh, we are a personal finance management tool, and I am really delighted to be on this podcast today. Thanks, Leita. Hi. And Cameron?
0: Jumped oh, the gun there. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Cameron Rogers, and I am a financial advisor in the private wealth business at Elavest. I'm based in, um, in New York in the United States and Elavest is the investment company co-founded by Sally Krotchek that is built by women, for women uh, and their families. And in my day to day, I work with high net worth women, uh, men and their families around how to best marry their investment portfolios with their day to day lives. Great. Thanks, Cameron. So now, because I'm not the financial expert, I'm going to turn it over. Leitha, pass over to you to start the moderation of this discussion.
1: Thank you, Ingrid. OK, so, Cameron, personally, it's a little bit difficult to get my brain around uh, the extent of this situation. I mean, we're seeing a complete bottoming out of oil prices. There are more than 26 million people in the United States alone who are unemployed. and it's already a really large hit to demand. And of course, the problem is when the gears of global commerce stop, it's really difficult to get everything rolling again. Um, I mean, we know that downturns are really nothing new. Uh, In fact, I was recently reading that there have been 33 recessions since 1854. And we can expect that the average length of a recession is about a year and a half. So we, we know that it's probably going to be a hard time for the whole world, um, but I would really love to know what your perspective on this is and what are you seeing and hearing right now?
0: So all the things that you mentioned, Letha, um, be it the price of oil, be it employment numbers and, and general commerce, these are all tied to activity. And today's financial climate is a function of mandated changes in activity. What we're experiencing right now is in many ways like a natural disaster, but it's, um, you know, but it's global and without a clear end. Mm-hmm. And the economic contraction that is a fallout of this is is very much man-made, right? Where the severity of the contraction is is kind of a good thing because it means that we collectively are all doing our part to fight the virus. And, you know, nothing is happening really anywhere um, although I guess I'll caveat this—that this is a bit of a you know as a U.S. perspective—and yes, there are economies coming back online uh, between Asia and, and Europe, albeit slowly. You make a good point in looking to history as a guide. Yes, all of the world's major stock markets, maybe barring Japan, are higher than they were 30 years ago. And while we feel in this current moment like the equity markets are are zigging and and are zagging from a bird's eye view, a long-term investor's experience has been that of upward sloping markets. And had you invested $1,000 in the U.S. stock market in the year 1900, um, your average return over those subsequent 120 years would have been 9.6%. Now, um, 9.6% may not feel tangible, so I'll contextualize it via the, the power of compounding and in dollar terms. That $1,000 investment uh, value at the end of 120 years through t- 2019 would have been $58 million. You know, and I'm sure there's been price inflation too over that same time, which we all need to account for when investing, but I do think that this is a powerful reminder. Uh, nonetheless, around the wealth creation opportunity we all have through investing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and may we all live a happy, healthy 120 years, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, what, what are the people that you are talking to, the, the clients that you're talking to, what are they asking you now?
0: Yeah, I would say that the two most popular questions are one, should I get into the market? So, you know, translation, should I invest in the, the global equity markets? And two, have we hit bottom? And usually that, that second question refers to the bottom, meaning the trough or lowest value of asset prices and less so the trough of economic activity and there's an important distinction there. Um, There's an important distinction because stock markets are are forward-looking in that they are the aggregate pricing of future expectations of company earnings. On the flip side, most economic indicators, whether it's GDP, and and that's uh, gross domestic product, whether it's payroll reports, and those are are guides around employment or or consumer confidence, those are all really point-in-time or backwards-looking indicators. So, if you're solely following the tra- trajectory of economic data, you know that trajectory will likely be be lagging the movement in global stock markets.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and definitely also some supply issues when you look at the closures in factories, especially in China. I mean, it seems like China is the uh, production system of the world at this point. So, I think there's going to we're going to see some lag there as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and so the, the questions that the people are asking you now, would you say those are significantly different from the questions people were asking you, say, even six months ago?
0: Yeah, so six months ago, a year ago, there were a lot of questions from investors around prices and valuations. And uh, what that means is that investors were asking whether the earnings and cash flows of different investments supported the prices required to purchase them or continue to own them as an investor is like, you know, is this, is this too expensive? Mm, yeah. And those were, yeah. And, and those were valid questions given where we were in the duration of the last market cycle. I want to caveat, you know, market cycles don't, don't die of old age, but the last market cycle in the U S went from March of 2009 to to February 2020, so just under 11 years or 132 months. And during that time, the S&P 500 uh, equity, uh, equity index or equity market returned uh, 401% in cumulative terms. So that sort of six month ago, year ago question, 2019 question is very much the flip side of what's being asked today. Whereas today the question is, should I enter uh, the flip side is, should I exit? And, you know, what always makes me nervous about these questions is that they're so binary and investing is in a, a flip of a switch and on or an off. It's not an in or an out. It's a series of these nuanced shifts that over the long run can provide powerful financial outcomes for people. And so if you take that binary approach to investing, you're basically setting yourself up for like total analysis paralysis where you... Mm-hmm you may never get invested or or you miss, may mistime yourself away from any financial return.
1: Well, okay. So a follow-on question to that. Do you think uh, for those people who are doing that strategy of like dollar cost averaging, just putting in sort of the same amount every week, uh, is, is that a wise strategy for the moment?
0: I do think it is. Um, you know, history will tell you, um, history will tell you that, Time in the market is much, a much more powerful predictor of financial success than timing of the market. So oh, what dollar cost averaging it is is it's eliminating the behavioral component of trying to time the market and instead, you know, averaging yourself in over time. Um, you know, to, you know, to different pricing and, and market valuations. And if, um, you know, if if you're a beneficiary of, you know, being part of a 401k scheme or another retirement scheme, given your employer, in many ways, you may already be doing this with your retirement dollars. And I think many can attest to the fact that it's like, there's really no thought going into it. And, and it's, um, you know, it's systematic in nature. So I do think it's a, it's a good strategy overall right now. hmm. And, and so these are the
1: questions that, uh, that people were asking you last year, that people are asking you this year. What do you really wish that they would ask you?
0: Oh, yeah. Power, powerful question. Financial advisor wish list. Very nerdy. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> my, my wish for 2020 and beyond um, is for people to ask, how does this downturn give me the capacity to do what I want to do or, or set in another way? Doesn't this environment give me the breather to make a change? And, you know, I have to give credit to my clients and, and prospective clients. They're asking this. And the question and and the planning around this is the really strategic stuff, you know, the investment alignment and, and, and wealth growing type of questions that people should be asking about. Like, you know, I see losses in my taxable investment portfolio, shouldn't mm-hmm. I? tax loss harvest right now. You know, I've always wanted to shift my assets to be more sustainably inclined. Like doesn't lower asset values give me the opportunity to make those changes? You know, don't lower asset values and lower interest rates give me the opportunity to gift or, you know, if I'm I'm unhappy with the financial advisory coming to me, you know, does this time Give me the opportunity to change financial advisors. You know, shameless plug. Yes, it does, and you know, in that case, you should be, um, you know, you should be talking to Elevest. Okay, (laughs) plug plug over.
1: Great, yeah. I mean, and and I, I love that uh, that line of thinking. Like, what uh, what are the opportunities that we have? What uh, what can we do to thrive? And I think we'll we'll touch on that a little bit more in the conversation as well. But I, I want to get into uh, some advice for small business because you know Dwayne really is made up of uh, entrepreneurs, and uh, I read uh, I think a really powerful article from the Harvard Business Review, which was how to survive a recession and thrive afterward. And that was by Walter Frick. I think it really had a lot of key business takeaways uh, for, for business leaders specifically. Um, it mentioned a focus on decision making, uh, you know, recruiting your employees from all levels of the business to help identify ways for you to improve right now. Uh, look at what your opportunities are again. Uh, and, and what uh, opportunities do you have to do some operational improvements? Uh, they mentioned that operational improvements do tend to be better than layoffs uh, in, in this kind of downturn, Uh, and and ultimately, I think a really good uh, piece of advice, uh, both for business leaders and and also for people within the Dwen Network, is uh, that their third piece of advice was to invest in technology. Um, And so... Uh, I, I think when you look at uh, how people are helping employees to work remotely, how to aid in employee collaboration, you know, suddenly everybody's talking about Zoom, uh, you know, has ElVest made uh, changes to, to cope with this situation?
0: Yeah, everyone's talking Zoom. Um, I think I may now dream in, in the Zoom gallery view, Brady pretty bunch-esque uh, blast from the past. Um, From a technology perspective, Ellevest was built uh, from day one to be digital, and that's very much thanks to our co-founders, Sally Krawcheck and and Charlie Kroll, who have built and scaled large financial and financial technology firms, respectively. So we were operating in the world of of mostly digital everything and intense security protocol from the get-go. Personally, so much of my business and the continual development of that business inside of vest was done in person, you know, up until six, seven weeks ago, I was, I was going to clients' homes to meet, or I was going to the office of a prospective client. We were getting together at restaurants or for coffee. I was hopping on, on, you know, planes, trains, and automobiles to meet. And, um, and to be honest with you, I, I'm learning that new normal um, on that front. And I think we, We all are, and our creativity and our resilience is very much coming to the forefront. Mm -hmm. And at Elevest, we are in many ways set up for resilience between the diversity of our company, the diversity of our company backers, and, and the diversity of our clients, and where they are in their investing journeys. And, Letha, you and I both know that cognitive diversity is an asset. And Mm -hmm. there is hard codified information um, to back that up. And while diversity of thought and background is so important in normal times, it's very much paramount today. So when you have a diverse employee base like we do at Elevest, where 73% of my teammates identify as women, where we are 45% individuals of color, um, and nearly half of our engineers are women, like half, that's unheard of in. in <laughs> <fun times. laughs> when you have this, you're the beneficiary of collective creativity, agility, and resilience. And so what that means in practice during a period of uncertainty like today is we can come together with diverse and perspectives and say, hey, this is where we can cut expenses. This is how we can be most resourceful with with people in their time, and at the same time we double down in our community and that ecosystem of those who already know us and support us, um, you know, and lean on that for continued organic growth during this time. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, same here. We our organization is also largely remote, and so uh, you know the transition. Uh, to uh, remote meetings was, was not a new thing for us, but uh, some of the ways in which we have had to uh, cope and contact with uh, investor meetings, for example, or, or to do conferences or to uh, switch uh, some of the processes uh, with others over uh, have been really interesting for us. Yeah. Now, um, when you are uh, looking out in your network uh, and you're, you're looking at the other businesses uh, that you come into contact with, are are you seeing interesting examples of uh, new technology or or new ideas that they're implementing?
0: So this has and um, and continues to be a time of urgent innovation where we we very much see what human ingenuity is uh, capable capable of, even in the face of adversity. And um, you know the the tremendous thing is that there are far too many. Good stories to tell, right? You could talk about HP and its customers, um, you know, making 3D printed parts for, for medical use. You could look at AB InBev making hand sanitizer. The, the list goes on and on and on. And those are big company examples. But I know that I, like many, and I'm sure like you, have seen incredible innovation from my own friends and community. You know, I have a friend working on a pandemic preparedness innovation challenge. I know someone else who through their company is, is using data science technology to connect the dots with those um, those individuals formerly employed by the hospitality sector with current staffing needs in post-acute care. So really sort of supply demand of individuals mapping. Um, you know, another example um, I've seen is businesses opening up their information flow during time during this time of distress so emphasizing the power and accessibility of information where you know this information in normal times may have come at a cost or premium you see this with a number of the news companies i know we at Elevest have made a commitment to answer any and all you know money questions that come our way. So these are, you know, these are some incredible shifts. And it's, you know, for me it's no wonder why why so many say right now is is, you know, reminds them of the inventions and agility prompted, you know, during and, and after the Second World War.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. I, you know, I, did you hear the thing about Zappos and how they opened up their phone lines so that people could just call in with uh, any question that they have, uh, whether it was, uh, whether it was about shoes or or goods or, or, or not? Uh, Yeah, I guess they've been uh, fulfilling requests uh, for, for masks for hospitals and things as well. But, um, yeah, I mean, and, and to, to go further with that, like when, when we are talking about the U.S. market, which um, you're based in and uh, probably have more expertise at this point than I do in that market, um, what, what are the resources for businesses that you are seeing right now?
0: Yeah, and, and, and I know that this is a global audience. Um, you know, we can also spend an entire podcast talking through U.S. fiscal and, and monetary stimulus measures, but for the uh, the benefit of this group's group's time and attention span, I'll focus on those fiscal measures geared towards small businesses, um, because I know that there are many, you know, in the founder, entrepreneur, funder community, um, and about twenty percent of the U.S.'s original two point three trillion-dollar stimulus bill, bill was geared or is geared towards small businesses, and there's um, another likely $300 billion in relief um, to come. And as backdrop, what so much of the COVID-related fiscal stimulus measures are solving for is a broad-based reduction in consumption across the U.S. as we quarantine and, and self-isolate at home. And consumption is very much the engine that drives the U.S. economy, and it represents 70% of, of GDP, or gross domestic product. So that equates to $14 trillion of spending per year, or a little over a trillion dollars of, of spending per month. So really sort of substantial substantial values. So these resources for small businesses through the relief program are meant to backstop them during a time of forced decrease in national consumption and to help with mission-critical spending activities like paying paying rent, paying interest on debt, and keeping employees um, on the payroll during closures. Now, there are two primary variations of relief for small businesses, and um, we'll define small businesses here as companies with less than 500 employees. And those are the Paycheck Protection Program and the Economic Injury Disaster Loan. And while both the PPP and the EIDL programs have similar eligibility rules, and you know, in, in many cases, a company can apply for both measures if the funds are used for different purposes within their business, the terms do vary across everything from loan size to ability for for forgiveness to the loan amortization schedule and guarantees. So if there are specific questions around these nuances, um, you know, we can probably put that back onto, onto the DWEN side and, and help you get those, those answers.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and I know uh, Ingrid also mentioned to us earlier that uh, Dwen has uh, a number of uh, frequently uh, updated pieces of information about these resources globally. Uh, I know we have a, a whole different uh, set of them here in Germany, um, but uh, what what are you hearing from from those who are applying for loans and aid?
0: Unfortunately, I think the best qualifier is that. It has been a frustrating program so far for many. Um, The larger of the relief program, so the Paycheck Protection Program, also referred to as PPP, ran out in two weeks, which is part of the need for this next $300 billion of funding. Um, And given the speed and and severity of the business impact of COVID-19, both uh, the U.S. Treasury and small business lenders have evolved their messaging around both qualifications for these loans and their capacity to process these loans so if you're a small small business following this messaging and it's you know kind of changing by by the day and the week that can be really tough and so what's then resulted is an application floodgate where so many loans um, were still pending before the money ran out and many small businesses still don't have access to a third-party lender to help them process these loans Right. But there's also been um, related reputational risk for companies applying for these loans. So there's a provision in the law that allows businesses in the accommodation and food service space to participate in the relief so long as they don't exceed 500 employees per physical location. Um, you'll remember that, that, you know, we define small business as 500 Total employees. So, so this is a provision, um, a targeted provision that makes an exception for, for those in the accommodation and food services space. Um, and because of this provision, you saw the likes of Shake Shack and, and Sweet Green, um, you know, two personal favorites of mine uh, in the US, very different types of purveyors of food, uh, burgers and, and salads, respectively. Um, but you saw them apply for the loans. Receive loan proceeds, I think about ten million dollars each, and receive so much public backlash that they ended up both returning the loan proceeds, and I think are still very much sorting through the the reputational repercussions. And, you know, this may mine may be a controversial opinion, but I do feel for these companies. Right, you're you're sorting uh, you're sorting everything out in a time of unprecedented physical and economic shock. You're thrown a lifeline that is technically available to you, um, you take it, and, and then you feel the brunt of reputational injury that's, that's often hard to overcome. It's, um, it's a nearly impossible decision-making web for, for these companies.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. Um, you know, the here the situation in Germany uh, has been kind of surprisingly efficient. I uh, I've been talking to other businesses that have gotten uh, you know grants um, and uh, and loans really quickly, and in fact freelancers as well uh, who have gotten. Uh, amounts uh, that allow them to feel comfortable uh, during at least this lockdown part. We'll see what happens uh, after this. But um, at the moment, it seems like uh, people here are, uh, are getting um, at least part of what they need to, uh, to continue business. And um, and it's master plan. yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's I mean, I, it's something I'm I'm very thankful about. But uh, you know, I, I think let's let's talk also about other types of funding, uh, specifically investment. Uh, I know that uh, you know we are in the middle of an investment round right now, and you know. To be honest, uh, investor attitudes have changed uh, in the past couple of months. Um, We are seeing them, you know, asking different questions, Um, you know, as as you mentioned, uh, we're seeing feedback from the public on companies and their behavior. Uh, For example, the the Shake Shack and Sweet Green uh, conversation And, and, you know, a lot of companies are laying off workers, or putting uh, workers on furlough, or or delaying payments, and, and I'm wondering, you know, do you do you think that companies um, are going to have uh, some repercussions, uh, some uh, some reputational repercussions um, when they go uh, back out into standard business uh, when things open up again?
0: I, I do, and and maybe even not, you know, when things normalize, but but also, you know, also now people have long memories when it comes to what you did in a crisis. So we, we talked about the Sweet green and, and Shake Shack examples. There have been similar litmus tests of public opinion, you know, be it the reaction to Marriott paying quarterly dividends while at the same time furloughing most of its employee base or the backlash at adidas when they decided to skip rental payments um, on their on their retail outlets when they clearly had the capacity to pay and unfortunately there are, there are many more examples of, of that as well I think the conversation around stakeholder capitalism couldn't be more relevant right now and and what stakeholder capitalism is is it's this idea that a company should serve those beyond just shareholders. So also uh, customers, suppliers, employees, and, and local communities. And I think that companies will continue to evolve their policies as the true scope of this crisis comes to bear. And at the same time, this is very much a time to reevaluate the societal infrastructure we have um, in place. You know, Looking to recent history, I think that we all still have relatively fresh Recollections of how companies and individuals behaved during the global financial crisis of, of two thousand eight two thousand nine. I, I know personally, I can't believe it was, you know, already eleven years ago. Um, but especially the banks. The banks were at the forefront, and and they're not at the forefront today. But um, you know, interesting enough, I I don't know if I would be sitting at Elevest today had Sally Krocak, our co-founder, not shown the leadership that she did while at um at Citigroup during that time. So. You know, kind of personal anecdote around around memories and and how that inspires action.
1: Yeah, and and the uh, both private investors and and also. Uh, larger investors, I think, have unprecedented access to uh, information about companies and individuals, and uh, and that kind of transparency, uh, I think, is a, a wonderful thing. But uh, also, it's something that I think all businesses uh, have to be really aware about, um, and and it, uh, it it brings up a topic for me about about risk. You know, um, your a reputation is obviously at risk. Uh, individual attitudes and feelings uh, about investment—you know—in my experience, a, a lot does come down to uh, people's feeling of risk about that investment. Um, and and so, are you are you seeing differences in the way that you the investors that you're talking to, uh, how how they're thinking?
0: Yeah, um, you know. You and I, Lisa, both both know that the idea of risk is is somewhat arbitrary without the accompanying metric of one's capacity to take on, on risk, and, and that'll vary investor by investor. Um, what I do see um, and what I think about when evaluating a company by the risks present in its business, I see more individuals... Um, and investors distilling it by, you know, the risk within the business. Um, So kind of, you know, standard operating procedures, um, event specific risk. So, so potential shocks to the business, given, you know, the, the sector and area and geography that that company's in. And, um, you know, three is, is, is risk around company policies. And it's, it's there where, you know, a lot of, a lot of that kind of social, you know, employee-focused, um, you know, work and work is is you know percolating today, um, and I think that if you can't make it on the other side of this, uh, you know, with checking all of these boxes, you know, whether you're generating a, a near-term profit or not, that's that's really not going to going to matter on on the other side of all of this.
1: hmm. Yeah, and and uh, just from from my experience, the the feedback that I'm hearing from a lot of investors is that you know uh, a few months ago they were they were really interested in your vision um, and you know what is what is your what is your five year plan? How are you going to take over the world? And now I'm getting a lot more questions about you know what does your IP look like? Mm-hmm. Uh, what is your what is your plan for like monthly recurring revenue? Uh, and and if you don't have revenue, why not? You know <laughs> these these kinds of questions. But uh, what What does the the landscape uh, look like in the U.S.?
0: Anecdotally, I think a lot um, is on pause, and I do want to acknowledge that this group of listeners is probably a a combination of those uh, bootstrap business owners and and venture-funded business owners, so this question may have different meaning for different people. Um, It's too early to report any venture capital trends based on, on deal closings, and I'll caveat that this is not... You know, this is not my expertise, but it's an interest and an interest of many of my clients. But the hope is that this won't be uh, a time of, of predatory terms for, you know, for founders and businesses. Um, and in the same way, we reevaluate our funding needs personally during a time of, uh, of crisis. And, and we're going to talk about that in a bit. I would encourage that same exercise with thoughts around your raise as a founder and business owner, and um, at the same time, I would also double down within your community of supporters, as that's where you have, you know, open, uh, open ears and, and current buy-in.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and
1: you know, just uh, acknowledging again that the the Dwayne audience is quite diverse. Um, mm-hmm. You know, some of them are are doing just fine, I'm, I'm imagining, uh, and and some of them um, are definitely not in the middle. Uh, of a raise or even even thinking about arrays right now
0: you've just finished listening to part one of this episode of the dwen podcast please subscribe and tune in next week for part two